You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Here's the thing about social distancing, what we were all asked to do back in March or start doing back in March. Here's the thing about telling people to stay home and close down their businesses and stop seeing friends and family. It was supposed to be temporary. It wasn't supposed to be something we would be doing until a vaccine came along in a year or two or three or four. It was something we were asked to do. It was something we needed to do, something many of us were required to do, something all of us should have been required to do while public health systems were created that would allow us to leave the house again and go back to work and see friends and maybe even get laid. And it was a very difficult thing that we were asked to do. And while we did our part, while we sheltered at home, while we canceled weddings, while we let loved ones die alone and then zoomed in for their funerals, the government was supposed to be doing its part. It was supposed to make tests widely available and create a system of contact tracing and require people who had COVID-19 or had been exposed to people who had COVID-19 to stay home, to quarantine themselves. The government was supposed to create protocols that would protect the most vulnerable while allowing the rest of us to return to some semblance of normal life, or the rest of you, I should say, as I count myself among the vulnerable. And that wasn't an irrational expectation. It's literally what governments did in Europe and China and South Korea and Canada and Rwanda, and it worked. You've doubtless seen the graphs that are zooming around online, graphs that show our cases of COVID-19 rising at pretty much the same pace as other countries. Then everyone takes a dip when lockdowns are instituted all over the world, us included. But our trend lines quickly begin to rise while the trend lines in other countries all over the world fall. Those were the countries that made tests widely available and required the sick or the exposed to quarantine themselves. And those countries, Canada, Rwanda, Germany, they are opening back up. We didn't do any of that, and we are paying the price. Now, wait, you know what? Our government, our incompetent federal government, didn't do any of that, and we are paying the price. They didn't hold up their end of the bargain, which is why we are 4% of the world's population and now 25% of the world's coronavirus infections. And people are in despair that anything is going to change. And they know that they can't keep doing what they've been doing and don't see the point in continuing to do what they've been asked to do if the government isn't going to do what it's supposed to do. Why hold up your end of the bargain when the government isn't holding up its end of that bargain? So I can't say the scenes out of Fire Island this weekend. Large crowds of shirtless gay men partying, no masks, no social distancing, while our already off-the-charts infection rates continue to rise in 42 out of 50 states. Gay men partying in New York, where 32,000 people have died. I can't say those images shocked me. They depressed me. They made me despair about how stupid people can be. But they didn't shock me. And on some level, I get it. We want to open everything back up, including our legs. And people figure, I think subconsciously or consciously, that if the government isn't going to do its part, if the government isn't going to hold up its end of the bargain, why should we bother holding up our end? Or refrain from sticking our ends up. If the president is going to have rallies in churches and infection hotspots without social distancing or masks, some people are going to tell themselves there's no reason why they shouldn't go to a crowded pool party where, 
as they would learn after the fact, someone who knew he had COVID-19 showed up to party too. Gay or straight, or bi or pan or asexual, or aromantic or a-hole, you shouldn't be going to big parties because you shouldn't want to make it worse. We shouldn't be going to parties, gay or straight, at all really right now. And while the selfish gay men were getting all the attention and all the focus of most of the internet outrage over the weekend, there were plenty of other examples online of straight people behaving just as recklessly and selfishly all over the country. And Jesus fucking Christ, people, even if the government isn't making it better, we shouldn't be making it worse. You shouldn't go to a party like that because you're better than the president or you should be better than he is. And how hard is that really? To be better than Trump? Has a bar ever been set lower? And to the selfish motherfuckers out there, even if you don't give a shit about other people, even if you're truly a Republican at heart, you shouldn't want to make it worse for yourself. If you go to that party or the bar or the restaurant or the orgy or the church service and get sick and pass the infection on to your friends and family members and neighbors, you aren't punishing the president or getting back at shitty red state governors or striking a blow for freedom. You're only ensuring that this shit that you hate, as we all hate, will continue and will get worse for you along with everyone else. So, the rage you feel about the way we've been lied to and betrayed and failed by our government. Don't dance it off. Direct it at the government. Demand that they hold up their end of the bargain while keeping your end at home as much as possible. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and Dr. Aaron Berry from Planned Parenthood joins us to tackle your sex and health-related questions. She's on the micro. There's also a ton of Dr. Berry on the Magnum. The Magnum, of course, is the subscription version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, and no ads on the Magnum, but lots of Dr. Berry on the micro, too. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about a question about my boyfriend. He is uncircumcised. And sometimes when we have sex, it seems like the foreskin on his dick pulls back a little bit too far. And then it hurts like it gets stuck there. And the next day, I'll, you know, try to instigate again. And he's like, oh, no, it hurts. And it's because his foreskin is still pulled back. And I don't know if you have any advice for that. What your boyfriend has is called phimosis. It's a narrow or small opening at the end of the foreskin. Basically, the circumference of his penis is wider than the circumference of the, the hole at the tip at the end of his foreskin. Sometimes phimosis is so bad that a foreskin can't be unrolled over the head of the penis, past the head of the penis. That's not your boyfriend's problem. He can get his foreskin all the way down past his penis, but then it gets stuck there because it's narrower than you know the circumference of the shaft of his penis, and it, it traps. It, it gets stuck, and that's painful and uncomfortable. It's also a little dangerous if it's cutting off his circulation or making it more difficult for blood to get to the rest of his penis that's in front of the you know, opening on his foreskin when it's rolled back over the shaft. And luckily for your boyfriend, this is easily treated. And if he had a worse case of phimosis, he may have already sought out treatment. There are ways to gently stretch the foreskin to make the opening wider. There are creams that can be applied that help with that, steroids. And there are surgical interventions if that becomes 
necessary. And sometimes those surgical interventions are necessary when a case of phimosis is much worse than what you describe your boyfriend suffering. But he should go talk to a urologist. This is a problem that is easily addressed, easily remedied, but it's one that a lot of people don't feel comfortable bringing up with their doctors because it means talking about your penis and talking about what happens when your penis gets hard and this discomfort and pain and people sometimes have a hard time talking about that. Some doctors have a hard time responding as they should when a patient raises a medical issue that's about sexual functioning. So if his primary care physician refused to listen when he tried to bring this up, yeah, he needs a new doctor. And if he hasn't brought it up, he needs to bring it up and he needs to then get a referral to a urologist who can help him with this. Hi, Dan. I, like many people, uh, have been dealing with my wife's lowered libido during the quarantine. And so I started thinking about hiring a sex worker, which is not something that I've ever done, ever thought about. And I'm also a non-binary person who is assigned female at birth. So it's not something that you see I've heard of my friends doing or something you see a lot of. So I'm you know, pretty new to how it all works. I saw a post in a social app for people like me about someone who was interested in becoming a sex worker and was reaching out to other sex workers um, for advice. I think I should mention that I'm also only interested in really butch women. I like really masculine women, and that's not something that you see very often. And so when this poster mentioned that she was butch, I was like, bam, going to reach out. So we reached out, set up a time to get coffee, and um, she shared her Instagram profile with me, which was not, you know, it's not a sex workery kind of profile. It's just like vacation pictures. And she said, she's totally new to the business. I think I would probably be her first client. Um, and we chatted a little bit, totally nice. And then I got nosy and I saw that she was following my friend on Instagram. And so I reached out to my friend who had been on a date with this person, had gotten her number and I got even more nosy and looked up her phone number. So what I found out is that she works at a job that makes easily twice as much as what I do in a year. She owns a house, and I feel a little weird about this. I feel weird that she wanted to charge what, from some research on Trist of sex workers in my area, is you know, maybe a little bit on the higher end of average. I feel weird that part of why I would like to hire a sex worker is to get that like professional experience. Like, you know what you're doing, you come in, you do it to me, and then you leave. And to know that A, this person doesn't have any experience, but is charging me on the higher end of average when she makes twice as much as what I do. And works in an industry, you know, works in tech. And I'm a healthcare worker who has been dealing with a lot during the pandemic. And that's part of why I wanted to hire a sex worker. Seems weird. Am I overthinking this? You know what I feel weird about? I feel weird about all the ways in which you've invaded this woman's privacy. I feel weird about how you've essentially stalked her, talked to friends who know her, who dated her, looked through her Instagram, which she 
shared with you probably out of naivete, probably because she's not that experienced and she doesn't know that some people who hire sex workers feel entitled to dictate to the sex workers they hire how much they can charge, who they can know, what their other jobs are, whether they can own a house or not. You seem to resent the fact that this woman isn't engaging in survival prostitution, that she's not charging $5 for blowjobs under the expressway. Now, I'm, I'm not knocking the $5 blowjob from somebody who's engaged in survival prostitution. There are a lot of people out there who've engaged in survival prostitution to survive. But there are also people out there who do sex work for other reasons and sometimes not out of economic necessity. And isn't that something that a lot of people claim at least to be a little more comfortable with? Aren't there a lot of people out there who are against prostitution, against decriminalizing sex work because they worry that a lot of people who are doing it are doing it out of economic necessity, doing it out of an, a kind of economic duress. And yet you cite this woman and the fact that she doesn't need to do this because she's got a really good job that pays more than yours does and owns her house. How do you know that she owns her house? Why do you know that she owns her house? But because she owns her house and has a good job, how dare she charge so much? Sex workers get to set their own rates. If you are not comfortable paying the stated rate of the sex worker that you are in Considering hiring whatever their experience level, move the fuck on to somebody who's charging a rate that you think is reasonable. And it, it just strikes me as really odd that you didn't think this rate was unreasonable until you invaded this woman's privacy. Now, she laid out a welcome mat by sending you her actual Instagram account. Perhaps that's a novice mistake that she won't make again if she's a listener to the show and she hears this call. But you weren't entitled to all of this information. You weren't. And, you know, you say that you wanted that experience of hiring a pro who knows what she's doing. If she's new to sex work, well, then she's not the person that you want to hire. She's not the pro who can bring to the table or the bed or the swing or the dungeon or whatever it is that you want from her, that experience level that you were looking for and that kind of, you know, getting with a, a seasoned pro thing that turns you on when you think about hiring a sex worker. So she's not the right sex worker for you. But you do not have a right to contact people that this woman knows in common to out her if you did, and I hope you didn't, as someone who's thinking about doing sex work, to check in on where she lives, whether she owns her house or not, where she works. You weren't entitled to any of that information, and it is creepy that you went looking for it. And if you were a dude digging into a, a female sex worker's past employment history their you know what they owned you would see how discomforting this is this invasion of privacy so back the fuck off you don't get to make an argument with a sex worker about your relative incomes when it comes to paying their rate or not and some people would regard the fact that she's never done sex work before as something they were willing to pay a premium for that's not something you want to pay a premium for. You want to pay to be with somebody who's more experienced sexually and more experienced in sex work than this woman is. Well, go find that woman. All that said, you know, if you're broke, you can say to someone, I can afford this, and then they can block you or shut you down. You can obviously say that. I, I don't think it's respectful to haggle with sex workers. If her rates are too high, she'll get no clients. She'll realize it. She'll lower her rates. Most sex workers I know block hagglers without a second thought. 
but you're free to say, look, I'm a little <laughs> broke right now and blah, blah, blah. And maybe I could afford this. That seems a little steep. You can say that. And she can block you or a- a- agree to your lowballed offer, but you're not allowed to cite the fact that she works in tech or that she owns a house and that you know that it's inappropriate that you went and dug all that information up about her so that what, so that you could throw it out in an argument. You can throw it in her face in an argument with her about her rates. Sorry, you made me mad, but you did. You made me mad. Jesus person. This is not something that you should ever do to a sex worker. And the last thing I'm sort of struggling with here is that you say that you work in healthcare, a nurse or a doctor, someone presumably on the front lines, which means your risk of exposure to COVID is higher than the average tech worker who owns a house who's dabbling in sex work. And so you are a greater risk to her than she is to you. The only risk she presents to you is perhaps financial because she wants more money than you're comfortable spending, but you pose a risk to her health. And presumably you're not going to quarantine for two weeks before you hire a sex worker. If you're in a high risk occupation, I would encourage you not to see a sex worker right now, unless you're following very strictly New York city health's recommendations about how to minimize the risks of a sexual encounter. Do it outside, wear a mask, don't kiss. There are ways to minimize your risks, but yeah, I'm not necessarily comfortable telling somebody who works in healthcare right now to go see a sex worker, particularly an inexperienced one who doesn't know better than to share her actual Instagram account with an anonymous, basically stranger who's interested in hiring them. And again, you know, the only thing you're entitled to when you hire a sex worker is their time. You're entitled to their backstory. You don't get to know where else they work. You don't get to know what they own. You're not allowed to weaponize that information if you should stumble over it during a haggling session that you are also not entitled to. Hi, Dan. So I uh, fell in love with a dude. I'm a gay man, and I basically fell in love for the first time, or at least I thought it was love. And right around the same time, I uh, came down with a fairly serious genetic disease, and the person I fell in love with came down with cancer, uh, which is fantastic timing for both of us. So he started chemo. I have a big surgery coming up. And right around the time, about the turn of the year, after having spent Thanksgiving with my family and I, um, and everything was going great, he had his January chemo treatment. He usually went into like a little chemo coma for like, you know, two weeks. And then when he came out of it, he'd, you know, call me and we'd talk and everything was fine. Well, January came and went and we didn't actually talk. Meanwhile, I'm texting him, you know, maybe not every day, but, you know, often enough to just be like, hey, how you doing? Hope everything's going well. And then it became February and March and April and May. Meanwhile, I had gone to his house at least one time to drop off a present and talk to his brother. He's still getting chemo. He's posting to Instagram and still just won't even text me back. So obviously, like, that didn't work out. But um, am I totally crazy for wanting and needing closure of some type just for him to at least acknowledge that we were kind of, you know, 
dating and he met my parents and they ask about him and stuff, you know? So obviously like I need to move on. So if you could just tell me that, that would be great, first of all. But then second of all, am I crazy for wanting and needing like just a little bit of closure? And if so, how can I get it? Considering he apparently doesn't want to talk to me. Mind you, there was nothing that like caused a breakup as far as I know. Um, Everything was fine. He just ghosted me. Move on. What else can you possibly do? Nothing crazy about wanting or needing closure, but sometimes we want it and we need it from someone who is clearly never going to give it to us. And when that happens, we have to give it to ourselves. We can do closure ourselves. We can close the door. We can close the door on a relationship that ended for reasons that are a mystery to us, a mystery to everyone but the person who's not communicating with us for whatever reason. He's going through a lot right now. That doesn't give him a pass. He owed you at least a text or an email ending things formally. Even if he sent that text or email, though, he probably wouldn't have made you a list of all the reasons why he wanted to end the relationship. People rarely share those sorts of lists with people they're dumping because I think people understand that that would be hurtful and and, and potentially damaging. And so we say things like, it's not you, it's me. I'm not in the right place right now. I have cancer right now. But you give a reason, sort of a little white lie that lets the other person off the hook without ever fully explaining. Like people want some sort of itemized list of all the reasons the relationship had to end so that they can then experience this thing called closure. Even if you're given that list, you won't feel that kind of closure. You won't feel emotionally satisfied about the end of that relationship. You will always grieve it. You'll always be a little bit sad about it. But the way people talk about closure, it's like a cure for that sadness somehow. If I just knew the reasons, if I just had this thing, I would feel better about the end of this relationship. And it's only time that makes you feel better. And the perspective time grants you that makes you feel better about the end of the relationship or the end of a relationship that you didn't end. Could he have ended it better? Yes. You could write him one more time and say, obviously, you know, it's been months and months and months since I've heard from you. I hope you're well. I've seen your Instagram posts. I assume you're doing well. Someday it would be nice to hear from you about why it didn't work out. And then send it and what else can you possibly do? You sending that last email, that last text message, that's the closure you're looking for. Not going to be satisfying closure though, but you know what? Even if he gave you all the reasons he didn't want to talk to you anymore, didn't want to continue to date you, that wouldn't be satisfying closure either in the sense that, oh, I'm content now and I don't feel pain now because I have this talismanic thing that I can label closure. doesn't work that way. Really sorry this happened and happened at a time in your life where you were struggling with health issues and he was obviously struggling with health issues and the whole fucking world's on fire. That has to make it worse and more painful. Maybe you'll hear from him one day. Maybe he'll give you the apology that I actually do think that you deserve one day, but you don't want to sit around waiting for it. Don't sit around waiting for it. Don't sit around waiting for him to give you something that you have the power to give yourself. And that's closure. Hey Dan, I just wanted to call and say thank you for making me aware that the HPV vaccine is available for men in my age range, I'm 27, and when I was young, I was told that HPV vaccines were only for women. And I just got my last installment of the HPV vaccine, and I wouldn't have gotten it at all if you hadn't said so on the Savage Lovecast. So 
Thanks. Joining me by phone to help tackle this, well, not quite question, statement, Aaron Barry, Washington Medical Director and Director of Clinical Research for Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest and the Hawaiian Islands. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Hi, Dan. I'm great. How are you doing? Really, really good. So uh, I'm, this really isn't a question. It's just a statement. Dude learned listening to my podcast that men can and should get the HPV vaccine. And I just wanted to toss it out there because I think that's important for men to know and the parents of boys to know that men should be vaccinated against HPV too. Can you give us the quick download on what HPV is, what the vaccine does, and why everyone, male and female, should have it? Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks so much for bringing it up on your show because you're right, it is just a crucial public health topic right now. So HPV or human papillomavirus is actually the most common sexually transmitted infection in the country. Um, And it has a lot of different things that it can do. There's a lot of different types of HPV that are out there. But the good news is, is that there is a vaccine. And that vaccine can actually prevent nine of the most common and the, the kind of worst, worst types of HPV that are out there. Um, and so vac- that's why vaccination is actually so important. And the, these, these HPVs, the, you know, these getting infected with HPV can lead to cervical cancer, penile cancer, rectal cancer. So being immunized against it with a vaccine yeah. is huge, a huge benefit to your health. It's huge. So it's estimated that 90, yeah, 92% of all cancers caused by HPV in the U.S. could have could be prevented if people were vaccinated with HPV. So, I mean, that could, it's huge. That could essentially almost get rid of cervical, vulvar, vaginal, penile cancer, anal cancer, as well as head and neck cancer. So throat cancer is on the rise. And the majority of that is caused by HPV that is preventable through this vaccine. So what are the vaccination rates for HPV? You know, they're not great. (laughs) Right now, the latest figure I found is about 51% of teens are getting the recommended HPV vaccine, so just just slightly over half. Um, But that rate varies pretty substantially in different populations, different areas of the country, stuff like that. And the recommendation is to get it, you know, to, for parents to make sure the children are vaccinated before they become sexually active. But if you're already sexually active, as this listener was, you can still get the HPV vaccine. It can still benefit you and protect your partners. Exactly. About a year, year and a half ago or so, the FDA expanded the previous recommendation, which was set at 26 years. But now all all people all eight, from ages 9 to 45, the vaccine is recommended for. And everybody should get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and particularly it's important. Some people are like, oh, I'm 30. I, you know, I'm in a stable relationship. I don't need it. And, and that may be the case. But sometimes people, you know, partners change. Things change. And that's sometimes something that people don't remember or think about doing as part of, you know, their sexual life. And as any listener of this show should be aware, sometimes, you know, I'm in a monogamous committed relationship. I don't have to worry about STDs anymore. Uh, uh Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe it's not so monogamous (laughs) as you have been led to believe that it is. That happens. Exactly. Oh, yes. yes. So, Aaron, we're going to, we're going to keep you around for a whole bunch of health questions that we've got lined up. I hope that's all right. Yes, that's perfect. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old female from the Northeast. And for the last year, I have had molluscum, a skin condition that's harmless, but sexually transmitted. And it's been all over my body. 
It's currently even on my face. Um, this has stopped me sexually from engaging um, with folks because I don't want to pass it. It's highly contagious. And I've never heard of this condition before. And a lot of professionals that I've seen, well, some professionals that I've seen have said that I can have sex with it and I, that I don't necessarily have to tell my partners about it. Other professionals have said I can't have sex. Uh, I don't understand. And I've been kind of making the rules up as I go. What are the rules when a partner has molluscum? Should they be taught? Should they be having sex? Should they be telling their partner? And I'm kind of bringing this up because I don't hear anyone talking about it. And all four gynecologists I saw said it's really common. So what gives? So you just gave us the HPV 101, and now I'm going to ask you for the molluscum download. <laughs> Great. Um, so molluscum or molluscum contagiosum is the sort of official name. It's a, it's a virus caused by pox virus. It's very common in childhood, and um, but also, you know, it happens in adulthood too, um, particularly associated with sexual contact or actually participation in group like contact sports. Um, it's self-limited um typically it's it's treatable and what is it what how do you how do you know you have molluscum what are the symptoms yeah so it's typically people um have these pretty small little papules or bumps on the skin and they're just usually a few millimeters in diameter and they're raised up and they usually have a little tiny dent in the center um and it's called an umbilication because it kind of looks like a little belly button in the center of it. Mm. Um, and you can have just one or sometimes people can have like groups of them or croppings. They can be um, kind of anywhere on the skin, although they're never on the palms or the soles, but anywhere else other than that, they can be. If you have lesions near the penis, the vulva, vagina, or anus, then that typically is when we call it a sexually transmitted infection. But again, it is just, Pass from contact of direct contact of the lesions themselves. But it's not. Cla- so, it's not um, it can be passed through sexual contact, like you know the common cold can. But it's not classified as a sexually transmitted infection, as the common cold also isn't. Isn't that correct? Correct. Yeah. So it's just a, a virus that you can get from contact with other people, and it doesn't have to be sexual contact. It's really just from touching right. the lesion, and, particularly if the lesion is scratched or scraped. And this is, you know, a reason you don't want to sit bare ass naked on a bench in a gym or wear short shorts to go work out in a gym once we can go to gyms again is because that's a kind of a moderately efficient way of transmitting this virus, but it doesn't cause cancer. There are no other health yeah. concerns beyond appearance. Correct. Exactly. It's considered sort of not harmful to your health, but doesn't mean it's not harmful to your, you know, sense of, um, you know, psychological health and just sort of seeing these things. But the good thing is that they are, you know, to talk with your um, medical provider and they are treatable. But treatment can be protracted. I assume that this, the caller has been talking to doctors for a while. She's seen three or more doctors who've given her conflicting advice about whether she yeah. needs to disclose or not. She's been seeking treatment. Is the infection in some uh, difficult to, to, to treat a, a, and cure? Yeah, again, in most people it's not, but in some people it is. And that, that can be associated with um, immune compromised states. So there is recommendations to you know make sure and screen for things that can be immune compromised like HIV. But also um, there is um, some potential correlation with certain types of 
atopic dermatitis, people who have kind of like allergy associated skin rashes or reactions, mm -hmm. they can sometimes have, you know, associated with worsening or just more risk of molluscum infections for whatever reason. I mean, we're not totally sure. And how infectious is it? Like, like the question that she seems to be really bumping on with her doctors is whether this is a really common infection, you know, is it easily transmitted and what are her obligations then around disclosure? So if the lesions are present, so if you have little bumps, then the virus is contained in that bump. So it's contained sort of just at the surface of the skin. So if the bump is there, then yes, it can be transmitted. As soon as the bump is gone, no, it cannot be. So it doesn't kind of live in your bloodstream like something like the herpes virus does. This molluscum um, is just sort of contained in the lesion itself. And, um, and so that's why when the lesions are on the um, genital area, the anus, vulva, vagina, penile things, um, the recommendation is to get those removed to limit the possibility or remove the possibility of, of sexual spread. And what about disclosure? So disclosure, um, you know, again, it, you can pass it if you have the lesions. If you don't have lesions and they're gone and it's, you know, then it really is up to you. You know, those are discussions that the chance of spreading, if you don't have any lesions present, mm -hmm. is, is, is zero. The virus is gone. It's only in the lesions. But if you have the lesions that are there, they're still healing, um, you're not quite sure, then yeah, you really should disclose because they can be passed. And using a condom or other latex barriers fits skin to skin if it's not just on the tip of the penis uh, or you know the interior of the vulva isn't going to provide a great deal of protection if there are bumps present. Exactly. And, and covering, so if you have bumps you know, on your hand, something like that, the recommendation is to cover them with clothing or with a watertight bandage. And that's a pretty very effective way of preventing transmission. The problem with um, with lesions on you know on the genitals is that you know sometimes condoms slip or you know things happen where mm -hmm. you know you can move, that barrier gets removed and there's contact with the skin and you don't know it or don't realize it and then you know just that limited amount of contact can transmit it in that scenario. And why do you think that you know with all the paranoia about herpes and the constant talk about herpes? Uh, which, you know, in reality, in the lives of most people who are infected with, with herpes, it's not a big deal. Why is there so little talk about molluscum? Why do we hear about it? Almost not at all. You know, it's a great question. I think uh, there's a couple of reasons. So one, it's most commonly seen in childhood and children. And um, and so it's sometimes seen as like a pediatric issue, um, which is obviously a case, you know, it is it is a pediatric issue, but it's also an adult issue, a human issue. Um, but sometimes it's kind of put in that corner for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, and another reason is that it's treatable and it goes away. Um, and although we have medications for herpes that can, you know, limit your risk of transmission and limit your risk of outbreaks and those sort of things, we don't have a cure for it. Um, molluscum, lesion is gone, the virus is gone. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a cis woman in my early 30s calling from New York City with a question about my IUD. So my partner has a huge dick and we like to have pretty, very rough sex. I have a hormonal IUD and we can both feel it when we're going at it. 
Afterward, I usually bleed a little bit, starting immediately for up to a day or so. And I experience symptoms similar to PMS, namely my breasts swelling up for up to three days after we have sex. It's worth noting that since my body adjusted to the IUD three years ago, I haven't had a period at all, which I know is quite common. So I'm hoping that you, your audience, or a guest expert might be able to help me understand what's happening here. First of all, should I be alarmed that our sex is so rough that it routinely makes me bleed? Second, are the PMS-like symptoms somehow related to the prolonged repeated impact to my hormonal IUD? And is all of this safe? Is this dude knocking hormones out of her IUD with his giant dick? Is that what's going on? Is she getting an extra dose? <laughs> so, uh, probably not. I really don't think so. <laughs> that, um, you know. It's not how it works. It's not like Jimmy's on a donut. It's not really You can how shake it works. them off. Exactly. It's, you can't just sort of, yeah. You can't, um, force the the um, hormones to kind of re-release faster from the IUD or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't have any safety concerns with that or like getting extra drugs or hormones or anything like that. Um, so I think it may just be, you know, her body's reaction to, to the sex and what's going on. I, I don't think it's related to the IUD. I haven't seen that before. And actually I asked a couple of colleagues just in case and everyone was like, no, you know, <laughs> but, but it doesn't it's sound, just her body's reaction. But it doesn't sound pleasant. Like she got an IUD and I assume no. <laughs> less well hung partners. She wasn't feeling his dick bumping up against it. And the dude wasn't feeling the IUD with his dick. How often is this an issue for people with IUDs, which are a really efficient uh, form of birth control and long-lasting, and there are hormonal varieties of IUDs. There's a copper IUD that has no hormones in it for people who have trouble with hormones, and some people do. Uh, It's a really terrific option. But if people hear that you can feel it during sex and it's painful, yeah, how often is that an issue? It might dissuade some people from considering an IUD, you know, if they're looking forward to finding somebody with a giant dick. Right. So you're right. IUDs are a fantastic option. And the vast, vast majority of patients do not feel their IUDs um, during sex and their partners don't feel. Um, There actually was a study that um, if you told partners that there were strings there, they were more likely to feel them. And if you didn't tell partners that there were strings on the IUD, they didn't feel them. So I thought that was interesting. We always have to assume (laughs) that there's a brand new listener who's 14 years old or 15 years old. Not that 15 year olds should be listening to my show, but some of them slip through the cracks uh, who don't know what an IUD is or what IUD stands for Mm -hmm. and have just had their minds blown by strings. Can you just like zoom out for a second and give us that information? Yeah, so the most common term for it is IUD or intrauterine device. You'll also hear IUC or intrauterine contraceptive around. And so what it is, it's a small T-shaped plastic device um, that goes inside the uterus. It's inserted um, in a clinic setting through the cervix and into the uterus. And it really has kind of two parts. One is the plastic T-shaped thing. And it stays there um, for a certain amount of years, depending on which one you choose. Or, as you know, if you don't like it, we can take it out before that time. So the T-shaped plastic part that's inside the uterus, in order to help us take it out when we want to take it out, there is a, some strings that are attached, and they're they're coated sort of plastic strings um, that 
are attached to the base of the IUD that's inside the uterus, and those strings go through the cervical canal and are out into the vagina a little bit. So that when we want to remove it, all we do is we do a pelvic exam, see the strings, hold on to the strings, and just remove simply just a little bit of pressure. And and most people describe the removal as, as pretty pain, plain, painless if they can feel it at all. So those strings can sometimes be felt by a partner, um, but most often not. However, sometimes people say, oh, I didn't really, I wasn't able to feel it before. Previous partners haven't been able to feel it. And all of a sudden, they can feel something and I can as well. Mm-hmm. And so if some that raises my suspicion a little bit that there may the IUD itself might be coming out itself. So the plastic part may be coming out on its own. And that can happen with IUDs. It happens about five percent of the time. And so um, you might want to get check out just to make sure that what you're feeling is just the string and not the IUD itself. Because if it is coming out on its own, it might not be working. Right. So she needs to go see the doctor just to double check and make sure it's not his giant, enormous, long, impaling device of a penis. If the IUD is slipping out, that's something that can be addressed. And maybe this won't be a problem going forward. Let's talk quickly about these, she says, PMS symptoms that she experiences after sex. They have really, she says they enjoy consensually, mutually, really rough sex. Is, you know, the sore and swollen tender breasts and whatever other symptoms she's experiencing, is it just endorphins and oxytocin? Is it just like in the wake of this rough sex, her body is taxed? Or can really rough sex induce PMS-ish symptoms in someone who's on a hormonal IUD and not having periods? Probably not. I think it's probably more the oxytocin effect than anything. Um, That would be sort of my guess, best guess. I don't hear that often or really haven't heard it much at all. And so it may just be her body's reaction. It's important to listen to your body. You know, every, every, everybody is different. Um, and so it's probably that her body's reaction to that. Um, but again, you know, probably a good idea just to check the ID that makes sure that you're feeling just the strings and not the ID itself. Hi, Dan. I am a 32-year-old pan cis woman calling from the Aloha State. Uh, my question is about bidets for those of us with lady parts. So my roommate recently got a bidet and loves it and I want to love it. But as someone who has dealt with many, many UTIs in the past, usually after PAB, um, I'm worried that a bidet could cause like trace amounts of fecal matter to enter my urethra and then cause infection. I don't know. Have you heard of bidets being like less safe for women? Is it just about the angle? Help me love bidets, Dan. You know, I I hate to start with dumb guys and center dumb guys in this response, but I have had so many guys, dumb guys, to you know, just to qualify, not all guys, express shock to me when I've explained to them that women have urethras too. They thought some of these guys I've talked, these are college age guys, not twelve year olds, thought that urethras were a penis thing and women peed out of their vaginas. So for the dumbest guy listening today. And you know there's one out there. Can you confirm that women do indeed have urethras and do not pee out of their vaginas? Yes, I can 100% confirm that. (laughs) The the urethra is set back in the vulva um, a little bit, but it's not in the vaginas. There are, you know, women have three holes, right? The urethra, Mm -hmm. the vagina, the anus. And the urethra is above the vaginal opening and below the clitoris. Correct. Correct. And, and, and we should light a little candle now 
to mourn how terrible sex education in this country is that straight sexually active guys have to be told by a fag that women have urethras and that they don't go into partnered sex with opposite sex partners knowing this. And I'm also going to light a candle that, um, that I see a lot of um, people of all genders coming in who don't know that information either, even when they have it themselves. And so I'm going to just mourn that a little bit too, because um, unfortunately it's not just straight cis men who don't know that information. But it's really fun to bag on straight cis men. Anyway, uh, <laughs> UTIs, urinary tract infections. Um, the shorter yeah. your urethra, the likelier you are to get a urinary tract infection, which is sometimes a little fecal matter or bacteria gets introduced into the, urinary, into the urethra, makes its way up your urinary tract into your bladder, and you get an infection. It's much easier for women who have shorter urethras to get UTIs, but men can also get UTIs. There's some guys out there who are into sounding, putting steel rods up their urethras or down their urethras, high risk for urinary tract infections themselves. But it's common for women. Why, you know, how can women uh, minimize the risks of contracting a UTI during PIV, which has been this caller's experience? It's not the bidet that she's had UTIs after using. It's men that she's had UTIs after using. Right, right. So, um, you, yes, it's a common experience. There are a couple different things that people can try. So, the practice of just voiding or, or going to the bathroom after sex can be helpful for a lot of people, just sort of regularly doing that, um, so that when you urinate, the urine passes through the urethra and hopefully pushes out any bacteria that have been, you know, slightly introduced near the urethra in the urethra during sex act. Some folks that doesn't really work for, you know, it's not enough. And they really do sometimes go, go see a provider and get prescribed antibiotics to take as a prophylaxis or a preventative measure to take um, if they have um, and every time they have sex sometimes or sometimes just with particular positions um, or with particular partners, things like that. So there, um, there's kind of an array of options um, that people can explore with their provider if it really is um, recurrent. As far as bidets go, there, there's no evidence that they cause UTIs. But a lot of these bidet companies actually claim that they decrease your risk of UTIs, and there's no evidence for that either. <laughs> so, um, so they're not, you know, we, we don't really know if they cause any, but they certainly um, don't prevent them that we know either. It stands to reason that they might. If you're using a bidet as opposed to just wiping, you're rinsing away or, or more efficiently cleaning and eliminating fecal matter. And fecal matter seems to be the real villain in the piece when you talk about UTIs, the introduction of trace amounts of fecal matter into the urethra. Um, and if there's less fecal matter sort of jamming around down there on you and your sex partner, less risk of UTI. It makes a kind of – even if the studies aren't there, it makes a kind of rough sense, doesn't it? It, 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 re- it totally makes rough sense. Um, and so, you know, it's – it's certainly, I think, something people can try. The one thing I caution about is that there are many bidet options out there that have um, settings where you can address the power or strength of the water geysers, you know, shoots that are coming out. And some of them, your strength, both for, there's like front work, for like feminine wash mm-hmm. up front and some back ones for 
for anal washing um, that actually have strength enough to penetrate either the anus or the urethra. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that I really caution about, right, using. And sometimes people get started using it and they're like, ooh, they pump up the power on it (laughs) and they start really enjoying it. And that with a urethra could potentially be problematic. Yeah, you don't want to give your urethra an enema by accident. No, no, no. Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> um, so that would be my, my caution about it. Just take a look at the settings and make sure you're using a setting that's good enough to wash, but certainly don't want power enough to, to penetrate um, any of your three holes. Yeah, but my advice, you know, I think, you know, zooming out or getting back to the, to the caller's question, I think my advice for her would be to give the bidets a chance. Like she hasn't sworn off men, even though men are the ones that are most strongly correlated with her experience of UTIs. She's never used a bidet, never gotten a UTI from a bidet, but she's worried that she might get one from a bidet. uh, And so she's eliminated any consideration of using a bidet, but she hasn't eliminated any consideration of using a dude going forward, even though dudes are the source. (laughs) <laughs> no, I totally agree. I would, I would tell her give it a shot and 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 see what happens. Um, because yeah, they they could do something for you and they could really change your life potentially. Um, there's also folks who have noted um, who have anal itching that um, a lot of that anal itching is due to irritation from toilet paper, and sometimes that UTIs or um, urethral itching is due to toilet paper as well. And so bidets can actually really help people who have um, genital itching. From that's chronic, that you know they've ruled out other causes of genital itching with their provider, mm-hmm. and just just kind of comes down to to over you know irritation with wiping and um, and that toilet paper and using bidets can really resolve some of those issues for folks. And demanding good personal hygiene from your male partners also helps. Here we're talking to the woman about yeah, you should wash your asshole. Yeah, you should do this. You should do that. You should pee after sex. Sometimes just making sure that your male partner by insisting that your male partner has showered before sex can help really reduce your risk of UTIs. That's true. That's a great point. Hi, Dan. My name is Amelia, and I'm calling because I'm in perimenopause, 50 years old, and I'm going through something I uh, haven't really heard people talk about with going into menopause. I have no sex drive. At first, I thought it was because my husband um, had progressively gotten worse and worse at sex. And then uh, as I started to sort of look into some of the symptoms that go along with this physical condition and my vagina got super dry, I realized, oh, no, this is something that isn't just about our relationship or about him as a lover. This is something that's going on with my body. So. Um, I now have no sex drive and I feel tremendously guilty that I don't ever initiate sex and I don't feel like having sex and uh, my husband doesn't take a lot of initiative, put it that way. So if I don't initiate, then it doesn't happen. He's not real happy about the situation, but he's very sweet about it. But um, I would like to get our sex life back somehow and I'm not sure what the best approach is. I know that hormones are a health risk potentially. Um, so I don't necessarily want to do that. And I don't even know if that would make the difference. So how do you get it back when it's all gotten cocked up? So menopause is a little bit like puberty in reverse, except only women go through it. Right? Or am I crazy? 
You can tell me I'm crazy. People tell me I'm crazy on my yeah, all the time. I wouldn't describe it like that. I just <laughs> how yeah, would you describe I it? Totally wouldn't. You know, officially menopause is you know defined as one year without periods, and that's the sort of official medical term for menopause. All the stuff that happens before that, the perimenopause, is really different for each person going through it. It's typically caused by lowering of of your um, estrogen and other hormone levels that happen with age um, in people with ovaries. But, you know, some people barely notice much of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And other folks, it's just really impacts their every everything in their life. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different emotions and physical changes and mental changes and things that people can experience. And they kind of, in a way, you know, don't know what their body is going to experience and what their body isn't going to experience. Um, so I think it's kind of a roller coaster. For me, that, that roller coaster, <laughs> emotional changes, physical changes, for me, that would, that's what sounds a little bit like kind of a puberty in reverse. Um, you know, hormone levels change or drop, vaginal walls thin, uh, there may be less lubrication. And for, for many, you know, people with ovaries who are going through this, many women who are going over through this, um, a cratering of, of libido, which in a relationship where your partner is still sexual or you still wish to be intimate and sexual, but there's no desire there, those are all big problems. I agree with you about the big problems. The problem I have with calling it puberty in reverse is like, um, you know, a lot of people think about puberty as sort of going into your adulthood, going into your sexuality or your the sexual nature of your body. And therefore, menopause and reverse would be the reverse of that, getting out of adulthood, go, you know, getting out of, of sexual relationship. And that, that, that isn't always, that doesn't have to be the case. Now, it mm-hmm. is for some people, and that's okay. And, and many people are okay with that, right? They say, you know, I, I've lost this part of my life and I'm totally okay with that. And my partner's fine with it and we're good. And, and that's, that's a different story. But many people, that's not the case. They more have, sometimes they have a temporary pause. Mm-hmm. Temporarily, during the peak of the changes, I'm not as sexual. I don't want that anymore. Other people have, you know, different response they really want to change it they want to maintain that and most people i think want to maintain it i guess i, I should i will stop saying puberty in reverse which i've literally never said on the show i've always just kind of thought in my head and tossed it out today but it has it's like echo can we say it echoes puberty in some ways because they're just these big changes yeah, that you're, you're, sort of, you're out of control and your body's changing in ways um and, and it's impacting you and you're not in control of it but it's true i have heard from many women who hit perimenopause and suddenly they were much hornier than they had been. That it had the sort of the reverse effect around libido right. than, than this caller. But for people that perimenopause or menopause tanks their libido, are hormone replacement therapy safe? Are they effective? Do, do they address, do, do they help with libido? Yes. For most people they do. And there are a couple different, I want to think it's really important to clarify there's a bunch of different range of options for hormone replacement therapies out there. So, you know, I think the most common that people think about or hear about is just, you know, pills or patches, just sort of quote unquote full dose or higher dose hormone replacement therapy. And that really helps with a lot of some of the systemic changes, sometimes mood, sometimes, um, you know, period bleeding issues before the bleeding is all the way gone the vaginal dryness and some of the, a bunch of, a bunch of stuff that's happening, hot flashes, those sorts of things. But it, some people have just 
they won't mind those other symptoms, but those symptoms are much less right now. But the vaginal or urogenital dryness is the is really the thing that just makes sex painful and uncomfortable. And in that case, people have the, a couple different options. One is a hormonal cream, so a vaginal estrogen cream. And it's topical. And so it's lower dose. It doesn't sort of get much systemic absorption. Therefore, some women are much more comfortable with that option, right? They're saying, okay, this is lower dose. is just locally acting to solve my current issue. And that estrogen really hydrates and pumps up the, the urogenital cells, so the cells in the, in the vagina and the urethra and the vulva, and really helps make sex and just daily life, frankly, more comfortable, right? You're not having that dryness, that, that itchiness sometimes that comes with it too. So that can really help. And then straight up lubricant, you know, it's that can do wonders. <laughs> um, there's a bunch of different types of lubricants, but in particular for um, for for good lubrication for people who are not relying on condoms um, for various things that condoms do, oil-based lubricants can really, really help with patients going through perimenopausal changes um, and really make sex more pleasurable for them. And, you know, sometimes women, you know, with their male partners or men with their male partners, suddenly their male partner, you know, is having erectile dysfunction issues as they age and may need to take Viagra. And there can be this shaming of the dude who now needs Viagra. I used to make you hard. Now you need a pill. On the flip side, you know, I used to make you wet. Now you need lubricant that people can attach Mm -hmm. meaning to you know, or erotics, something erotically significant to what is a physiological change that is not in that person's control. They may want to fuck you just as much, desire you just as much, be just as turned on by you. But because of age, physiological changes, you know, they need the assist of lubricant or the assist of uh, Viagra or Cialis. And we shouldn't stigmatize those things. But people shame their partners for this. Exactly. And they internalize the shame on on themselves too, right? So I think having open conversations with your partner or partners about what's happening with your body and your desire changes, it just couldn't be more crucial. I mean, it always is, right? Um, And that's no less true in the perimenopause or menopause stage of life mm-hmm. <laughs> as it is when you're a teenager, right? Um, but this even more, even more, right? Because there's so much stigma, so much shame, and so much, and a lot of assumptions that people have on each other, right? That sometimes when you, you know, when you talk it out, your assumption was totally wrong, and it's something totally different going on with why one of you isn't initiating, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so if you don't talk about it, it's hard to fix it. Yeah, I kind of want to shame her husband a little bit. I, you know, the last thing I want to do is like bag on the, the caller's husband. He wants her to initiate and is like butt sore that she's not initiating. He's not initiating. He's not taking, you know, taking any responsibility for instigating sex acts. And he needs to recognize that she's not feeling it right now. And if he's going to rely on her solely to instigate or initiate, he's going to get less than he might otherwise if he made a little bit of an effort. Right. And, and that's why talking, talking to each other too, because sometimes he, you know, sometimes folks like, I don't want to initiate because it's clear you're in pain and I don't want to cause you pain. Right. And I don't want to give you feel, make you feel guilty if you have to reject me because you're in pain. Well, outer course, outer course, outer course. Exactly. So the other thing is, you know, this, you know, it's talking about what else you can do besides penetration. So first of all, I, I'm, pretty big proponent of masturbation. 
<laughs> okay, especially, and sometimes talking to patients going through menopause, it's something that they really haven't done in a long time or never did or just not something they think about even in, or even if they do it still, they don't think about it in relation with their relationship with their current partner or partner. So it's super important to figure out, okay, what does good feel, feel good to you now? And how can you potentially incorporate your partner into that, to what feels good for you now? Because your body may be changing. Um, and so certain positions just don't work anymore, but maybe you can find new ones or new things that you can do, particularly oral sex often. That is way less painful and still very enjoyable for um, for you and your partner or partners to reconnect on. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight woman living in the Midwest. I was dating a fantastic guy for about two years. I ended up breaking it off with him because I wasn't really emotionally in a place to be in a very committed relationship at that moment. I've since gotten therapy and have been doing so much better and really been doing great. So that's all good. A year passed and we started getting, you know, talking again and decided that we maybe want to give this another shot. And I want to be as open with him as possible, but I'm not sure if I should tell him that while I was single, I started seeing someone, he was really just a fuck buddy, and and I ended up getting pregnant accidentally. So we decided together that we didn't want to co-parent, it was not something we were interested in, so I decided to terminate the pregnancy it was emotional, but I don't regret it. Have I've been doing well, and again, speaking about it in therapy. But I am a little bit of two minds on if I should share that with my ex-boyfriend when we get back together. Mainly because uh, when we were together, we had discussed the possibility of if I were to get pregnant accidentally, uh, what would we do? And we always said that we would raise the baby together. And honestly, if it happened him that I had gotten pregnant with, I probably would have kept the baby. So I'm not really sure how to go about this. I want to be honest with him, but I also don't know if that's just too much to say or what. First things first, she's under no obligation to disclose. Correct. Yeah. It's her personal health information. So she's she's under no obligation to to disclose it all. And I would actually go back and say first things first (laughs) is thank you for sharing your story. Because not not all people can share their abortion story for various reasons. And that adds so much to the stigma stigma and shame around abortion. Mm -hmm. And just telling it, the act of telling it, it's just really powerful. So thank you for sharing. And two, you're under no obligation to report. <laughs> that, that said, under no obligation, I do think that there are so many men rattling around out there who may be ambivalent about abortion or never really thought about it very deeply, who have benefited from abortion without knowing that they benefited from abortion. Because a girlfriend or someone that they were seeing casually got pregnant and got an abortion and never told them. And, and, you know, if they, you know, had to confront the, you know, the thought of becoming a parent at that moment, they might not have wanted to either and seen the benefits of abortion. And, and here's a case that, you know, this guy can only get back together with the caller because she got an abortion. And if he has an issue with that, with her having had an abortion, well, then if she had carried the pregnancy to term and and stayed with that other guy or was co-parenting with that other guy, she might not be available to him emotionally 
anywhere logistically in the way she's available to him now. So here's another example of a guy who has directly benefited from a woman having a right to terminate a pregnancy and is, doesn't know it. And I think it would be better if all guys who benefited from a woman exercising her right to terminate a pregnancy were aware of it. And so many guys aren't because – Women don't always disclose and sometimes women don't disclose because they don't feel safe disclosing. They're worried about violence. They're worried about being shamed. And so they don't. But God, if we lived in a world where our woman could disclose, I think there'd be fewer shitty men out there who didn't see the upside in abortion for them. I have to agree with you there for sure. I think that, you know, stories change lives. Stories change perspectives. Stories help, especially by somebody you know, helps really put it into perspective. And everyone who has an abortion knows somebody, you know, that that probably doesn't know about their abortion and what what would happen if people knew. I think that's really important. But in the decision to disclose, you know, it's also about, you know, like you said, safety is super important. But then I also want to reflect a little bit on so let's say you get back to the, together with this guy, this guy, this caller, because she described he's such a great guy and she was really into him then. And, and now so she, she's with this guy. If she doesn't disclose, I think it's important for, and for anyone who has an abortion thinking about this. Will you feel like you have a secret and what's that going to do to you? And what's that? And I, what I really want people to try and avoid or, or think about around disclosure of abortion is, is that going to then have me shame and stigmatize my own abortion? And am I going to internalize that? Cause I feel like it's a secret and what is that going to do to me long-term? What does it do if you're watching a movie or a TV show and a character has an abortion and you're sitting right next to them and they react badly or they react good or they react, don't react at all. How are you going to feel? And what is that? What is that going to mean for you and for your relationship with that person? So there's a lot to unpack and there's a lot to think about, you know, what matters and, and also timing. You know, do you have to disclose your very first date back? Does that make sense or not, you know, or once, you know, and so everyone's a little bit different with that. But. And it's sometimes it's about shifting your perspective. Do I owe it to him to disclose this? Maybe you should wonder whether you owe it to yourself to disclose this to spare yourself the, the keeping of the secrets, so, you know, always worrying about if or when he should find out and then, you know, what might happen like to, to live with that day in, day out, I think would be, it's an unnecessary burden. If you tell him you had an exactly. abortion and he freaks out at you, he's not someone that you as someone who's had an abortion should want to be with, should be wasting your time on, should be stressing about right. Exactly. And I really commend them for having that conversation for, you know, what would happen if we are faced with an unplanned pregnancy? What were we going to do? And they had a plan, which which I, I commend for having that conversation because it's an important conversation to have. However, plans change <laughs> um, sometimes very quickly, right, when faced with the actual reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to also talk about that, that, that you know, plans change and and um and so it's important to know what their views on if if in different scenarios you know is it ever okay if we decide to terminate as a couple um and and because you know there there are a lot a lot of things can happen in a person's life or a couple's life together um that can you know sway people towards this complete opposite decision of what they 
quote unquote thought they would do if faced with an unplanned pregnancy. Before we let you go, I wanted to get your reaction to the Supreme Court decision on abortion, the unexpected Supreme Court decision on abortion with Roberts, the chief justice, anti-choice Republican appointed chief justice siding with the liberal majority to uh, slap down trap laws, uh, targeted restriction access. I don't remember trap stands for it's requiring abortion clinics to have admitting privileges at local hospitals that they can't get to, to be full surgical centers, which they do not need to be um, in order to shut them down. And the Supreme court heard a case about this and we were all braced for a decision making abortion even harder to get in many places of the country than it already is. What was the reaction at Planned Parenthood to this decision? So it really was the best outcome in the June Medical Services case. And I, I mean, I honestly had a big sigh of relief. Um, but, but overall, the efforts that are currently underway by um, the conservative minority to really gut at abortion rights without fully gutting abortion precedents is very, very, very real. So states are introducing and passing restrictions across the country all the time right now in states like Tennessee and Alabama and Missouri and Indiana, and I could go on, unfortunately. Um, so I think that, you know, we still have to keep fighting to protect, maintain, and, and I hope expand access to what I consider basic healthcare so that everyone is has this available to them, sort of regardless of race, income, location in the country, gender identity, and a number of other factors. And unfortunately, that is not the reality of the U.S. right now. And uh, it's targeted restrictions on abortion providers, trap laws uh, that have been rolled out in red states all all over the country. Um, I thought it was really significant that Robert's decision wasn't an epiphany and he suddenly came around on a woman's right to control her own body. Robert's decision, siding with the liberal majority, was on a technicality, was on something called stare decisis. But there are other cases moving through the courts, and I'm just worried that some voters may say, oh, all right, even with a conservative Supreme Court, they're not going to roll back abortion. You know, in the run-up to this election in November, these cases are coming down next year, and Roberts could take a pull a 360 degree, pardon me, a 180 degree turn on this. And, you know, if we get complacent, if we assume that despite all of Trump's appointees to all these federal courts and the Supreme Court, that we don't need to turn out and vote in November to to defend a woman's right to choose among all the other things we need to go to the polls to defend, that we could end up with Roe scrapped a year from now. So, you know, that, that is, it is a concern. You know, Chief Justice Roberts filed an opinion that concurred with the majority, and that was based on precedent. It was not, like you said, it wasn't based on him having changing views about abortion in general. And so, you know, the courts, both the lower courts and the Supreme Courts, are, are currently not not really on our side. And so we have, we have an uphill battle, and um, yeah, and so it's, of an uphill battle. There's currently 16 cases that are just one step away from the Supreme Court with the goals of either abolishing current abortion precedent or just gutting it even further. So the the threat is real. Aaron Berry, Washington Medical Director and Director of Clinical Research for Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest and the Hawaiian Islands. We covered so much ground today. HPV, IUDs, mollusks, bidets, menopause, abortion, the court. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome and thank you for having me. Hey, Dan, I'm a queer 30-something cis woman living on the East Coast, and I've got a question. So I identify as a femme and a bottom, and I'm attracted to butch lesbians who are tops. 
And one thing that I find super hot is when my partner uses a strap on, we refer to it as their cock or their dick. And I love saying things like come inside me or blow your load inside me or I love the way your cock feels. I'll give them blowjobs. It's just overall fun to kind of play around like that. I know not all lesbians like this, but I've definitely experienced it with multiple partners. So my question is, do gay guys do this? Like, do cis guys with penises, do they ever say, fuck my tight pussy or anything like that? Is that a thing? Or maybe it's like, lick my tit. I don't know. Is this a thing for gay guys? You might want to watch a little bit of gay porn, particularly gay porn that's been produced in the last, oh, three or four years. A decade ago in Gayland, we were having this big freak out about mask for mask and everybody wearing baseball hats backwards and having gym bodies and being bros. And, you know, there's always a kind of erotic pushback to any sort of emerging, stultifying social norm and you could have seen this coming, that in the wake of this mask for mask shit, it wasn't the sort of high-minded queer theory critiques of mask for mask bro culture that resulted in this. But in the wake of it, in reaction to it, you've got breed me, knock me up, fuck my pussy, gay guys calling their assholes cunts. The popularity of a little bit of sort of gender bending cross dressing, the, the sort of like the violation of this norm, this taboo, this expectation that everyone would be masked, the guys are into guys. People then saw that as it became the sort of dominant kind of gay male archetype and wanted to puncture it, puncture its pussy. So, yeah, there are a lot of gay guys out there right now who are talking about getting fucked in their pussies. Everybody out there in Gayland now, it seems. Instead of saying, you know, fuck me and come in me, they say breed me. Now, for gay guys of my generation, when breeder was our hate term for straight people, it's really kind of weird to hear gay guys talking about breeding each other. Really weird the first time a gay guy asked me to breed him, by which he meant come inside him. Kind of freaked me out a little bit. And then he called his asshole a cunt, and I was like, huh, huh. The more things change, the more they stay the same in a way that kind of mask for mask broy gay culture was a reaction to the expectation or, or just sort of the cultural assertion that gay men were feminine in nature and gay men sort of masked up to reject that. And then once that became dominant, gay guys started, you know, the perversity of the erotic imagination wanting to violate that norm, that taboo. And so, yeah, you hear it a lot. You hear gay men talking about their pussies a lot these days. And I will leave it to the queer theorists to unpack whether it's misogynistic or whether it's affectionate, whether it breaks down gender stereotypes or reinforces them. That wasn't your question. Your question was, do gay men say these sorts of things? Do gay men talk about their assholes in sort of the mirror image, photo negative way in which you talk about your girlfriend's cock? And indeed, they do. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Juliet Winks tweets, It's amazing how many of my conversations include, well, Dan Savage says, My sympathy, Juliet, to your family and friends who must be sick of hearing that. With and without tweets, do you think it's socially responsible for OnlyFans models to actively engage in fin-dom practices while some people may be nearly broke? Just curious as to the ethics of it. 
well, with and without, I look at it this way. You can whip someone who likes to be whipped until their skin is red and flushed. You can whip someone until they're black and blue. You can whip someone literally to death. There are no ethical issues with whipping someone who likes to be whipped until their skin is flushed. Black and blue is okay too, so long as the person you're whipping likes it, of course, and also isn't going to lose their job or their kids as a result of heading home with bruises. If you know they'll lose their house or job or kids and you do it anyway, even if they asked, I don't think that's ethical. And whipping someone to death, even if they consented, not okay, not ethical, not something a person can consent to. Similarly, Taking money that someone can spare and that someone enjoys giving you, no ethical issues. Taking money from someone, even if they'll give it to you, that you know they can't spare or don't have and that could possibly result in that person losing their home or starving. Yeah, not okay. Not ethical. But the Fin Sub has some responsibility here too. Financial domination is a kind of sex work. And if you can't afford to see the sex worker, don't see the sex worker. And Taylor Christensen tweets, Dan, do you or your listeners have a drinking game for the Savage Lovecast? I recently got a Magnum subscription. My wife has never listened. I would love to make a night of listening to the archives with her. Hmm. Well, you could always do the catchphrases and neologisms, the DTMFAs, the GGGs, the Santorums, the peggings, but then alcohol poisoning is a real risk. Instead, I would suggest maybe taking a drink every time I pronounce vulnerable correctly. And yes, people, the L is silent invulnerable just as the l is silent in salmon calm colonel calf half walk talk chalk could should this is a hill i am willing to die on all right if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the savage lovecast be sure to include the hashtag savage lovecast and now your response calls hi dan i'm actually on my way to get covid tested but i wanted to stop and call a response in for the caller who was calling in about pain at dinner i'm a waitress and i always pay very much attention to when a man wants to pay and a woman is trying to split it. I think it can be occasionally an indication to the man that it's a de-escalation of the stakes post date. So I always let females pay half if they want to. It just feels like sort of the responsible thing to let happen. If I was giving advice to this guy, I would say, tell your date that you have lots of money, you're happy to pay, but if she wants to split it, that's totally okay too. I'm calling in response to the woman in the last show who had reluctant sex with her male friend. I think Dan was a little harsh on her because I'm willing to bet he knows she has feelings for him and he could have been more careful around that. But I want to thank you, Dan, for the reminder that reluctant sex is not sex you want to have, guy or girl, whoever. I've been in that situation a few times where I didn't really want to have sex at all, but I was afraid they'd feel bad if we didn't. I wasn't afraid they'd beat me up or anything like a woman in that situation might be, but it, but it was still really shitty, uncomfortable sex. And I felt bad after, and she feels bad after. And, and what's extra shitty about those times is afterwards, she got upset with me anyway for making her feel shitty about the sex that I didn't want to have. So I guess the lesson is we all deserve sex with people who really want us uh, don't settle for less or be creep about it no matter no matter your gender hey dan i just wanted to give a big thank you for bringing in the local kansas congressman kind of in the name of a flyover state i'm calling from nebraska it's just so republican and often sometimes pretty backwards and slow 
But I really appreciated the idea that there are tons of people here who are uh, progressive and are very diverse and, and are really, most importantly, really working actively to change the kind of the persona of the red state views. And only by encouraging other people to come in and to take part in that work is, is that change really, really going to happen. And so I really appreciated uh, presenting kind of a more welcoming view of the flyover states. And we would encourage you to maybe, you know, stop flying and drop on in sometime. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Better yet, better for us, better for the listeners, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This Friday, July 10th, is your last chance to catch Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 1 with some of our favorite dirty films from Hump from 2005 to 2018. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets. And by popular demand, on July 30th, Nancy and I will be hosting another Savage Love live stream. You'll be able to get all of your burning questions answered live from my living room. The first live stream was a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to the next one. Again, it's July 30th. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Planned Parenthood on Twitter at PPFA. And if you can spare it, please consider joining me and Terry in making a regular monthly donation to Planned Parenthood. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.